This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Homeland Security has 300 new cyber recruits and 500 offers to candidates as part of its 60-day cyber workforce sprint. The agency says that far surpasses its goal of 200 new hires by July 1st. FCW reports the agency says it used best practices in diversity, inclusion, and equity hiring in the initiative. The Government Accountability Office's Artificial Intelligence Framework is live tonight. The framework covers governance, data, performance, and monitoring of AI deployment. GAO's chief data scientist, Taka Ariga, tells FedScoop the framework will help provide independent verification to prevent biases in agency AI deployment. The Army will have a new assistant secretary nominee soon. A Biden administration official tells Army Times the White House will nominate Rachel Jacobson to be the next assistant secretary for installations, energy and environment. She'll oversee the service's barracks, energy security and climate plans if the Senate confirms her. The House Appropriations Committee will mark up a $706 billion Pentagon spending bill starting next Tuesday. To most analysts, there weren't big surprises in the bill the defense subcommittee voted out. Roman Schweizer's managing director and aerospace and defense policy analyst at Cowan's Washington Research Group. Roman, thanks very much for coming on. I mentioned before we went on the air that your uh, analyses, your comments are always very thoughtful. And I uh, refer especially to those that you made last week on this hack D markup uh, and vote out bill. You write about some of the programs that the, the, uh, so the subcommittee voted out. I'm going to start with the ground-based strategic deterrent. $2.5 billion there, Roman. You see this, you write, as a very good outcome. Why so? Sure. Well, uh, Francis, thank you very much for uh, inviting me on. It's great to see you. Uh, look, we are in the uh, sort of budget silly season, right? All the committees going through their marks, uh, particularly related to the GBSD program. It's the next gen intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, it has been uh, sort of a target of the uh, of the anti new crowd, uh, and certainly some progressive lawmakers uh, would like to see it uh, uh, either delayed or uh, even canceled. Uh, and so I think it's a very positive sign that the committee uh, supported the administration's full request, uh, which actually supports a billion dollar ramp in the program. Uh, so the administration is doing a nuclear posture review, which will probably report out next year. Uh, I think it's probably a good signal that, uh, you know, ultimately that program is going to move forward. I apologize profusely, Roman, because I went nerd right up front when you have some important analyses at the beginning of this work. You write uh, uh, under the bottom line up front, don't panic now about the top line. Individual program decision, however, can be insightful. How so? Great. Hey, that's all right. I love to uh, go go right to the uh, budget nerd factor uh, as well. 
I mean, look, we are, you know, this is a uh, this is an interesting time uh, because legislatively there's a lot of money in play on the Hill right now. And uh, I think one of the sort of subtleties that no one wants to talk about is we don't really know what the defense number is going to be uh, at the end of the year. Um, the administration proposed 753. That's the all in 050 number. Uh, 715 is the uh, is the 051 number. And then, as you mentioned, the Appropriations Committee uh, handles everything but the Milcon piece of it. Um, and look, there is a very fine line. Uh, progressive uh, liberal Democrats want to cut defense 10 percent. Republicans want to increase it three to five percent. Uh, there are razor thin majorities in both chambers. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, red state uh, Democrats, moderate Democrats, um, to include a number of senators, to include a number of House lawmakers, uh, can't, uh, you know, want to vote more for defense. So I think we're into some interesting uh, few weeks to even maybe late into the year as to how the full appropriation cycle sorts out. The cynic in me, Roman, scribbles down one group cut 10 percent, another group raised 5 percent. Sounds like that's a flat deal right in the middle, doesn't it? Uh, so it would, but I'm going to throw another uh, wrinkle into that, is that non-defense spending programs are up 16% year over year. Uh, defense is up 1.6%. Uh, there's there's also so the cynic in you should be wary of maybe that decimal point right and maybe the uh, 16 and, and 1.6 symmetry, uh, but you know this is the Biden administration sort of uh, giving a nod to the uh, progressive elements of the party that say non-defense had been underfunded uh, back in the glory days of the Budget Control Act, which we all know and well uh, you know know and love so much. Uh, defense and non-defense were linked uh, dollar for dollar, right? Uh, you know, one dollar up for defense meant one dollar up for non-defense. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what that ratio is at the end of the day. But I, I suspect defense, I suspect non-defense is not going to be up 16 percent. And I suspect defense will be up more than 1.6 percent. I, I know the BCA. I take your love it comment about the BCA as sarcasm, Roman. Uh, back back to the nerd list that I wrote here. Funding the second set of five Chinooks, uh, long lead funding for the third set of five Chinooks, that jumped out at me because it speaks to uh, the continuation of the Army's big six. Is that a fair read on my part? Well, I think we're what we're into is um, the parts of the budget that Congress doesn't like, right? And so it's a you know so one it's platform retirements, whether those are ships or aircraft, tankers, navy ships, things like that, uh, and then it's also the cuts in procurement. And, and really, you're talking about balancing the legacy uh, platforms, uh, right? Which is a dirty word, but those are our jobs in districts. And then you're talking about the shift to uh, to newer aircraft programs. So you're right. I mean, that's a kind of a throwback to some of the older Army programs, uh, the, the Chinook. And then if you look at a program like Future Vertical Lift is a direction the Army wants to go. And you have to kind of, you know, you, you're always going to have that uh, the creative tension between the, you know, the older program that's perhaps sunsetting and the newer program that's either ramping up or in its teething stages or something like that. That's one of your uh, long-term, long-view insights at the beginning of this. You write older programs, fighters, transports, helicopters got needed increases. That's not necessarily good news inside the department, is it? 
Well, no. I mean, look, this is the, you know, what the House appropriators did with their mark, and, and we'll see how much that continues in the full committee, uh, is they took money from research and development and they swung it into procurement, right? And, uh, you know, whether that's an additional destroyer or, or whatever. Uh, and, and I think, you know, DOD, you know, knows that a little bit. You know, there are the sort of games that, uh, you know, sometimes get played. And, and, you know, as you know, the unfunded priorities lists are out and things like that, targets to add back. Uh, you know, so there's always going to be sort of a, a give and take uh, in terms of priorities. But, you know, you have to understand that, you know, the um, Secretary Austin, all the uniformed service chiefs go up and, you know, you, you try to build a budget that is the uh, best balance of resources and requirements. And, uh, you know, you, you're trying, I think this budget is certainly a push forward to try and um, develop and feel those sort of newer capabilities that support the, the national defense, you know, the new 2018 national defense threat. Roman Schweizer, always terrific insight. Thanks for sharing it today. Thank you, Francis. Coming next, a new bill that could tear apart the thrift savings plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the unintended consequences of the geopolitics of investing. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. A new Senate bill would force the Thrift Savings Plan to revamp its international fund to take out companies the Chinese government owns or owns parts of. Those restrictions don't apply to other funds, according to Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. We touched on this in our conversation after last month's board meeting. What would the Thrift Savings Plan have to do if Senator Rubio's bill becomes law and the TSP would have to disinvest from the Chinese companies in the I-Fund? Well, if Senator Rubio, Senator Rubio has two bills, one of them says we couldn't invest in any company that the PCAOB, uh, the Public Corporation Accounting Oversight Board, um, can't audit. So that is Hong Kong and China. Hong Kong is in our current iFund. And so we would have to, at the moment, stop offering the iFund because there are no commonly recognized international funds for developed countries that don't include Hong Kong. Um, so that would be the first impact. His second bill um, would rewrite our, our board's fiduciary responsibilities. And currently the, the board operates solely in the interests of the participants, the TSP participants. Senator Rubio would overlay that solely in the interest with the board couldn't um, do anything that wasn't in the national security interest uh, and would say that the Secretary of the Treasury, Department of Homeland Security, Attorney General, uh, Secretary of Labor, and one other person I'm forgetting, uh, would, would do regulations, would promulgate regulations that would tell our board how to operate in national security. That obviously is completely um, sort of gutting the solely in the interest uh, rule and wouldn't apply to any other fiduciary duty for anyone else in America. What's the potential impact on participants in the TSP with that change, Kim? Well, it would be hard to know because the American national security waxes and wanes over time, right? And it would make 
the TSP subject to um, a rolling involving uh, standard that would be incredibly difficult to uh, keep the TSP participants sort of on track with what they're supposed to be doing, which is saving for retirement um, and their long-term investments. I understand the gravity of the second bill and the potential changes that the TSP could have to make depending on who's in power in the House, uh, Senate and in the White House. The first one strikes me as potentially more challenging to TSP participants in the short term because so many people in, uh, have the iFund as part of their portfolios and the iFund obviously is a component of every single L fund that you offer, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. It would be very challenging. We would have to either, we would have to strip the I fund out of the L funds um, and potentially disinvest people. I mean, honestly, we haven't really contemplated the operational difficulties of it because it is so pervasive and so um, unprecedented. And so, as you point out, there would be significant difficulties and challenges and it would not be in our participants' best interest. Uh, we'll leave that and come back to that as, uh, as the bills progress in the chamber. Um, you are in the next phase, I see from this month's board meeting notes, of uh, your multi-asset manager project. Where does that stand, Kim? We have now, um, for our C, S, and F funds, we have um, given the portion of each of those funds to the new manager, State Street. Um, and so now BlackRock is managing 90% of the C fund and 80% of the S and F funds. Um, we are determining when to do the I fund. That hasn't been scheduled yet. But we were very relieved that everything went smoothly and both um, fund managers are now trading on behalf of TSP participants. And we were, as you noted, we reported on it earlier this week uh, with our board members. Is the iFund decision um, regarding the multi-asset manager project, um, is that somehow interacting with the legislation we talked about a few moments ago, or are they independent issues? They're independent, but obviously one is informing the other. Uh, so the decisions are independent. How you do it is something that we could plan. We will are planning, uh, but obviously the uh, multiple bills on the iFund are something we're keeping an eye on. What do we know, if anything, about the fee structure that uh, BlackRock coming into the market will, uh, will, will that have any impact on the fee structure? It won't have any appreciable impact. Um, we obviously keep uh, our low-cost goal in mind when we're negotiating with fund managers, with any of our and our, any of our contractors. Um, and no, having the second fund manager will not have an appreciable difference on the the fees charged to our participants. Kim Weaver, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the diversity drive heats up across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the executive order that could change everything about your agency's inclusion efforts. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back.
A new White House executive order will drive diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility across federal agencies. The order includes a list of action items for every agency. Akisha Murray's principal for change management, culture, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility at LMI. Akisha, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. At the enterprise-wide level, the government-wide level, I'm struck by the breadth of this executive order. It's not just people of color, uh, women, first-generation professionals and immigrants. It's individuals with disabilities, LGBTQ+, Americans who live in rural areas. There's a wide swath of types of people that the executive order wants to make sure are included. Isn't there, Akisha? Yes, yes. And and I was really encouraged to see that uh, when you think about diversity, equity and inclusion, really, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that everyone can see themselves in this. It's not just about addressing racial inequities, but it's about creating the, the kind of environment where everyone can thrive and belong and show up as their authentic selves. The one of these elements with the elements of this EO that I thought was interesting, it charges all agencies with assessing the current state of diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and accessibility within their workforces. How does an agency go about doing that effectively so that it knows on what it needs to take action? Uh, well, that's a, a great question. And another thing that was uh, interesting about the EO is that, you know, agencies have 100 days to do this assessment. And I know that they may not feel like much, but I would encourage agencies to resist any urge to approach this as a check the box activity and focus instead on the intent of what is being asked. And that is to seek and find any barriers to opportunity that exist within their organization. And there are any number of ways an agency may approach this. Uh, they may choose to conduct outreach to their workforce, contractors and civilians um, through anonymous surveys or for focus groups with the purpose of getting a real sense of the true experience of the employees in their organizations. They could conduct an analysis of their demographics uh, to see where their gaps are in representation within the organization. They may also choose to review their internal policies and practices for hiring, promotion, professional development, and ask, are these the processes that are truly necessary and are they meeting the needs of our organization? Um, but it would be important to remember that this is a review, not an implementation of improvements. The executive order is asking for a review. So be practical about what you can do in 100 days and start with what you have, what data and information is readily available to you. If you even come to realize that some information is not available, but you should be collecting it, that is just as illuminating and meets the intent of the executive order, which is to understand what barriers exist in your organization. Yeah, th that's what struck me about that be, uh, as being so important, Akisha. It's not prescriptive. It's just saying, find out what you really know and then move from there, right? Exactly. That's exactly the ask. Um, the second item uh, that I see here is that it directs agencies to seek opportunities to establish or elevate chief diversity officers within their organizations. doesn't say establish chief diversity officers. It just says seek opportunities. Am I reading it maybe too finely, Akisha? 
No, I think you're reading it spot on there. Um, And I think that may be an acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, this will take time for agencies to adjust to. Um, This executive order is, as you may know, a natural extension of the first executive order that President Biden issued when he joined office, the EO on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities. And um, I think it's a clear signal to agencies to make the investments necessary in their organization to prioritize DEI&A because it's important for the future of their organization. So yes, it may be practical for some agencies to identify a chief diversity officer and where that is not practical, identify someone, a senior leader in your organization who will lead the charge in that respect. There are a number of other provisions of this EO that I wish we had time to discuss. Unfortunately, we don't. What are the hurdles that you potentially see, Akisha, for organizations trying to implement the eight or 10 different uh, provisions in this EO? Well, there there are quite a few that I can think of, but I'll give you three if, if we have the time. Yes. Data, stove piping and good old human nature and emotions. Uh, Let's talk about availability of data. This executive order has already called for an improvement in the collection of demographic data about the federal workforce um, with this charge to understand barriers that underrepresented communities have. There may be some challenges in even collecting that information because we simply do not monitor that data or it's privileged information, but we cannot manage what we do not measure. So agencies will need to review their current guidance on the collection of demographic data, what is collected, who has access, so they're better able to identify and address those barriers. With respect to stove piping, I would say, um, you know, there may be a natural inclination to just think of DEI&A as an HR matter or an EEO or the Office of Diversity's responsibility. Don't stovepipe it in those organizations. If addressing equity is thought of as merely a compliance issue or the charge of a single department, we will not accomplish the mission. Improving DEI&A requires a comprehensive systemic approach and it's responsibility of everyone. So be mindful of how your chief diversity officer or whoever is in a similar role is empowered to collaborate and make decisions with the rest of the organization. And then finally, human nature emotions. This diversity, equity, and inclusion work is unlike anything else you may encounter. It, it really it really tugs at the heart sometimes. And so as leaders uh, within your agencies, as you peel back the layers and learn more about where barriers may exist within your organization, it's perfectly normal uh, to encounter any number of emotions, whether that be shock, disbelief, or even dismay, and even question your leadership. Um, But I would encourage uh, leaders to give themselves and others grace and recognize this work for what it is, a challenge to be overcome collectively. Akisha Murray, thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate your insight. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's archived at govmatters.tv. You get a preview and a recap of every show. When you sign up for our daily newsletters, you just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. 
Thank you, Francis.